Hey listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's guest, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, spent eight years in the Obama administration trying to stop the spread of dangerous weapons. Given the relevance of limiting the spread of uh, dangerous nuclear and biological weapons for reducing the risk of a global catastrophe, it's a pretty self-recommending interview. She's out of government now, so was also able to speak more freely than most. The majority of uh, you listeners have some interest in politics, government, or international relations, uh, so I expect most of you will want to listen in. Before that, though, a few notices. Uh, thanks to everyone who filled out our impact survey to let us know how 80,000 hours has uh, changed your life. Uh, and double thanks to the 100 people who also gave some feedback on the show. Most people who did that just said that they uh, loved the podcast. Uh, but the two most requested changes were uh, for me to speak more slowly in order to match the speed of guests uh, and to use the chapters feature so people can find the section of an episode. The former is surprisingly hard to do uh, as I tend to speak very quickly just all the time in my life, uh, especially when I get excited. Um, you can, of course, slow me down in your podcasting app, though I know that then makes the guests too slow. The latter we can do, though. Uh, we're now going to be using chapters uh, so you can jump to the sections of the episodes that you find most interesting. Uh, this will be especially useful for really long episodes uh, where there might be a section two or three hours in that you're particularly curious about, or if you want to refer back to some point that we made uh, later on. Chapters are supported by most podcasting apps now, uh, including Apple Podcasts, Overcast, uh, and Podcast Addict, and it will likely come to all the others in time. Let us know if you have any technical problems with chapters so we can get them working well. We're at rob at 80,000hours.org and kieran at 80,000hours.org. All right, without further ado, here's Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. Today, I'm at EA Global London, speaking with Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. Ambassador Jenkins has had a long and varied career in the US government and policy world, with a focus on peace and security. In the 2000s, she spent four years as a program officer working on US foreign and security policy at the Ford Foundation, before spending seven and a half years as special envoy and coordinator for threat reduction programs in the US Department of State in the Obama administration. Since then, she has been a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service, and has founded and led a new organization, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, or WCAPS for short. And as if that wasn't enough, she's vegan, worked on the 9-11 Commission, has a PhD in international relations from the University of Virginia, a Juris Doctor from Albany Law School, and spent four years in the US Air Force Reserve, followed by 17 years in the US Navy Reserve. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ambassador. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So I hope to get to talk about careers in diplomacy and non-proliferation work and your work to promote leadership by women of color in international peace and security. But first, what are you working on just at the moment and why do you think it's really important? What I'm working on at the moment is a lot of time being spent on the organization that I've established, which we'll talk about later. And also I'm teaching and has taken up a lot of time teaching and molding young minds on global threats. But I also work on issues, I continue to work on issues of weapons of mass destruction looking at some of the threats that we're facing in terms of U.S. withdrawal from a number of treaties. What does that mean in terms of future arms control, whether it's a threat to arms control, what's the future of arms control, now that we don't have as many treaties as we used to have, particularly with Russia. So really looking at that space of where do we head now on these issues and also continuing to work on issues of infectious disease. 
I guess, are you hopeful that after 2020, we might be able to change some of the things that have been perhaps getting getting worse in your view? Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, yes. Yeah. Are there any treaty withdrawals that bother you in particular, or you think are particularly uh, risky? Well, obviously, the issues that I work on with nuclear are particularly of concern to me, but also issues that are not in traditional, not hard security space, like climate change. I think that we should be doing a lot more on that. It has a lot of implications on a lot of things that we're doing, and we're not really taking a leadership role in a number of things on foreign policy. So I have, I have a few concerns. So as listeners probably probably gathered from the from the introduction there, you've done so many things in your career, it was a little bit hard for me to kind of narrow down and figure out what it was most worth talking about. But I think the thing that will most excite listeners and potentially fill in some gaps in my knowledge is to uh, talk about the seven and a half years you spent at the Department of State working on cooperative threat reduction. I guess, yeah, so chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological threats. I guess you're also involved in setting up the global health security agenda, which I actually just talked about back in episode 27 with Professor Tom Inglesby. Uh, does that sound good? Yes, good yes. All right. So despite having actually worked in the Australian government a little bit, and I suppose having this pretty big interest in global catastrophic risks, I actually am just super ignorant about diplomacy careers and kind of what Department of State does and all the different branches and, and security careers in general. So you might have to take things a little bit slowly and map, map things out from the beginning. But yeah, so what are the di- different kind of categories of problems that you've worked on over the next decade? There's like there's so many terms that fly around, you know, CB, CBANR, like CTR, non-proliferation, WMDs, and uh, yeah, and, and a lot more. Uh, is there any way of like mapping it out and giving a kind of a, an ontology? Um, yes, I would map it out like this. Weapons of mass destruction are chemical, biological, nuclear issues. And we've re- we've added radiological. So that's why you have CBRN now. And I focus mainly on arms control, which is to limit how many we how many arms countries have of these weapons. Nonproliferation, which is to reduce the increase in the number of states that would have those weapons. And so that's kind of a category of arms control, nonproliferation of weapons of mass destruction. A lot of that has focused on states. You know, traditionally, we have focused on countries like Iran, North Korea, before India and Pakistan developed their nuclear weapons. There were another couple of countries we focused on and also focusing on countries that have now uh, given up their nuclear weapons. So that's one category. Another category to look at is what I what I did while I was working in the Obama administration, which is called threat reduction. And what that is, is the same weapons, but we're focused on individuals who have nefarious intent to get their hands on what they can use to develop those weapons. So that's focusing on non-state actors. So one is focusing on states and one is focusing on non-state actors. And that's a lot of what the threat reduction is. Yeah. Interesting. And then I guess there's the, the global health stuff as well. And the global health, the global health security is focusing on infectious disease issues. And the reason why these issues that I work on are a part of it is because when we set up the Global Health Security Agenda, we were looking at how to help countries around the world build a capacity to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease. And in the prevention side is where my work falls because that's trying to prevent bad actors from using biopathogens to create a disease. And what, what's the kind of overarching category here? Is it kind of peace and security? Well, that, that, I think the overarching category of that is international security, weapons of mass destruction, international security. When you add the global health security work, then it's more expansive into because then you're not talking about just purely hard security, you know, even though my piece of it is, it's more of a global threat. And what are the key actors here? I guess there's so Department of State you're involved with. I guess it's also going to be Department of Defense. Right. Um, I guess like the World Health Organization potentially uh, is like international bodies that, that look at this as well. Right. The thing about the global health security agenda, it was what we call a whole of government approach. So it has a number of departments within the United States who work together like Department of Defense, Department of State, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Health and Human Services, Department of Agriculture to deal with the animals and the plants, 
the U.S. AID, working with development around the world, the FBI for Bureau of Investigation, and probably a couple of others that I forgot. But it really is a whole of government approach to try to deal with this. And when we work with other countries, we ask them to have the same kind of whole of government approach because you need that to try to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats. And so it includes all of that, but it also includes multilateral organizations because you need to have them involved. So you have the World Health Organization. You have the Food and Agriculture Organization. You have the Organization for Animal Health. And then you also have things, entities like the World Bank, because they put a lot of money on these issues. Then you have regional organizations like the European Union, the African Union, and then you have a number of non-governmental organizations. So really, it's a whole of government, whole of society approach. And are there any other big actors that should be named on cooperative threat reduction? Oh, yes. We, for that, it would, could you have to have the Department of Energy because they would deal with the nuclear side as well. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they do a lot of work in, within the U.S. to make sure that Things in the U.S. are being, the, the radiological material, for example, is being, is being protected. And then you have even thing like, even like the Department of Homeland Security. There's a part of that that works on chemical security issues. So, yeah, there's a number of departments who are involved in a lot of these things. Okay, let's talk about the cooperative uh, threat reduction work first. So as I understand it, that kind of dates back to the, the end of the Cold War, and there was kind of a scramble to prevent nuclear material from the USSR falling into the, into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I guess, what does that look like now? Because I imagine we've kind of probably mostly done that with, with Russia, but has it evolved into something more? Well, yes, you're right about the fact that it started when the Soviet Union fell apart and there was a real desire to try to make sure that there was going to be the, a security of uh, materials and pathogens and things like that. And that, you know, people with that scientists with knowledge could get paid so that they wouldn't go to countries and sell their knowledge. So there was a huge program called Carbon Threat Reduction that was started by Sam Nunn and Dick Luger to really put a lot of money into the Russian infrastructure, to, to secure material, to build fences, everything from that to getting jobs for scientists, basically. And that's matured throughout the year. And when I was working at the State Department, my job was really to help coordinate the work that State Department was doing with, on those issues, to coordinate it with other, with other departments in the U.S. and with other countries. So that has continued. We, during my time, toward the end of my time in, in, in government, there were a number of problems because Russia was not wanting to stay a part of that anymore. I think they felt that it was a remnant of days past. They were saying that we don't need to be doing as much to assist them now because they could take care of it themselves. So that was a real problem because it really closed off a lot of ways in which we could work with them to keep track of all the money we put in there <laughs> to, help, to help to make sure that facilities remained safe and secure. So that was really a, a real problem and really hurt it in many ways. Yeah. So did the, did the focus shift then to other countries other than the former Soviet Union? Yes. What happened was even before Russia started to show signs of wanting to withdraw from the cooperative threat reduction work, the U.S. has started expanding its work outside Russia. So the Department of Energy, Department of State had already started going into Africa, Asia, Middle East, a little work in Latin America, not much. And so we started doing that. And then Department of Defense were starting to get authorizations to also go outside Russia. So that was already happening and they're continuing to do that now. Do you think Russia might have a point that it's, it's been a while now, they're kind of, they've got their things a bit more together, so perhaps they don't need as much help from the U.S.? Well, it's always nice to know that someone doesn't need as much help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of places that that money could be, be spent. But there also was, there were relationships that were developed. There was, there was verification mechanisms that, and just having that kind of relationship and being able to be on the ground and see, you know, make sure that, the, like I said, that the facilities that we helped to establish there and the security that we helped establish is maintained 
And so when you break off those threat reduction activities, you you lose a lot in terms of interaction with the country. Yeah, interesting. So I guess what are the uh, biggest threats that, that, that worry you now in terms of like uncontrolled nuclear material? Uh, wh- yeah, where is it coming from? Well, fortunately, what I can say is there were always there was always concern about some coming from Russia, for example. But because we've had this nuclear security summit, there's been a lot less of a concern, a lot less of that happening. Now, of course, I don't have access to Intel, so I can't tell you <laughs> where it's coming from now, if at all, because I don't have that information. If I did, I couldn't say it anyway. Um, <laughs> But, you know, obviously it's going to have to come from a place that has those sources. And, you know, plutonium, highly enriched uranium, for example, is not everywhere. So, I mean, it'd have to come from a country that actually has it. Okay. Yeah. I guess like Pakistan possibly could be. Could be well, they have it. They have that too. Yeah. I can't say where it came sure. from them, but, you know, they, they are a country that actually has that. Yes. Yeah. I guess how much does it matter if a country has kind of a, a peaceful nuclear power program? Does that does that create much risk of... Well, it, what it, the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, allows countries to have a, a peaceful nuclear program. It's in the treaty. And so um, any country can have that. The only problem with that is when a country develops a knowledge for how to do a number of things, it doesn't take a lot more for them to develop, to know how to do a nuclear weapon. So I think that's always one of the, I wouldn't say it's a hold in the treaty, but it is kind of a concern that if they know how to do that, they can also know how, learn how to do a weapon. Interesting. But I guess is the waste itself kind of a, a risk? Well, the waste is, is not healthy. I mean, it's really radioactive. I guess that's a radiological threat. Yeah, yeah. And and there's there's always has to be a concern about what, what happens with the waste, what countries do with the waste. I mean, so that's always something to think about environmentally. So it sounded that there's like at least kind of half a dozen players in this, maybe dozens if you cast a wider net. Do you think possibly there's maybe too many organizations and it's difficult to kind of, is a bit of a herding cats problem perhaps, getting everyone working together? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if there's too many. I think it's, it's making sure that everyone's working together and that we understand who's doing what, you know. So, I mean, there's there's multilateral organizations, there's initiatives like the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism. There's a global partnership that I was leading. There's certain export control groups that are out there. So there's a lot of entities in all of the WMD space. But so I think the important thing is making sure that everyone's working together. So obviously there's a lot of security issues in the world uh, today as there kind of always is. Uh, are there any that kind of stand out to you as particularly uh, worrisome in terms of how severe they would be and, and, and how probable they are? Well, obviously WMD is always because of not so much probability in terms of nuclear, but because of what devastation that could happen. But more of the other kind of global threats that I teach about, like climate change and the effects of climate change uh, on the environment, which will affect us. And so that's that to me is one of the biggest concerns because the effects of what it has on parts of the world and also in the U.S. So that those are the things I'm concerned about. Yeah, I had uh, Samantha Pitts-Kaifer on the show, uh, I think a year, year and a half ago. And it made me, well, we, yeah, we, we discussed the, the risk of like a potential nuclear explosion in, in, in the U.S. Or, or elsewhere. And it made me think that, so a lot of people will potentially die uh, right away, but potentially even the, the worst effect would be that it would be a large closing of borders, potentially, because then everyone would be worried about uh, nuclear material uh, getting into the country and then being used against them. Yeah, do you have any sense of what, what would be the greatest risk? Like, what would be the, 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 the flow-through effects of a, of, a, of a terrorist attack like that? Could it be that it would, you know, damage international relations for, for many years? It could damage international relations. It could, I mean, I think it's the panic that it would cause. I think a lot of the repercussions like that. I mean, there's the panic, the relationship, the health. All, I mean, there's a lot of things that would result from that. 
So let's let's say that we couldn't stop, you know, uh, like a dirty bomb being set off in any US city. Is there anything that we can do ahead of time to ensure that the public doesn't go crazy and like start demanding like policies that would actually would be detrimental or at least not not? Yeah. Like- well, there's exercises, of course. I mean, there's a lot of exercises that can be done to help prepare the people who have to deal with that know how to deal with it at the last minute. And and one of the things you do these simulations is you help people know who their who their partners are so that you don't have to wait till something happens. So they're, you know, helping the, the health people to know who to work with, with the first responders and things like that is helpful. And that will help prevent overreaction. You know, there's always, you can always put policies in place or something in place to prepare for something like that. I think cities do more of that than like the federal government in terms of, you know, how to deal with, a, with a, some kind of a disaster. When I was working at the Ford Foundation, we visited several cities and one of the things that we were doing was, was asking questions about how do you deal with a disaster, whether it's weapons of mass destruction or it's an earthquake or how do you deal with it and seeing how different cities are prepared or not prepared to deal with those things. So having that set ahead of time is probably the best way to do it. And it's the cities really before the federal government that'll deal with those kind of things. They're, they're, they're immediate. Yeah. Are there any threats that the U.S. Or, or the world as a whole you think is really uh, failing to, to deal with or yeah, neglecting to, to think about? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... there's <laughs> so many. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, just going back to the climate change, I took... A, I mean, I, in the class that I teach at Georgetown, we, as I, I think I might have mentioned, we have a different threat every, every week. And last week, we were talking about the oceans and biodiversity. And before that, we were talking about water scarcity and food scarcity. And these are things that we're not really thinking about. You know, Americans don't think about, probably other developed world don't think about as much as they should. But when you read the numbers about the number of people who will be affected, the economic downturn that will happen, we lose certain species or because of plastic in the water. These are things you don't normally think about. And that's the problem is things are getting worse, but people aren't really realizing it. So you have the climate change, which is important, but there's not enough of a connection made between climate change and some of these other issues to really people understand that this, it's not just that, it's everything else that's connected to it. And those are the things that are real. That's, I mean, the nuclear thing we hope won't happen. We do the things that we're going to try to prevent it, but this is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it's not so much risk as just reality. Yeah, and dealing so, with, and yeah. the fact that we're not trying to prevent any of it is, is we're just losing, we're getting further and further behind the curve. Yeah. Do you think enough people are working on engineered pandemics? I guess that, that's one that worries me in particular, where it seems like there's not a whole lot of government programs relative to the scope of the issue here. Well, I mean, it's an issue that the Biological Weapons Convention, they have a discussion on it every time they have a meeting every year. They talk about that because it's obviously a concern, particularly since so, you know, all these all these pathogens are dual use. So it's easy for you know, things that could be developed in new technologies that could be used for good, can be used for bad. So you have to always worry about it. You always have to really be thinking about what the potential negative consequences could be from the new technologies that are being developed in the bio world. So I guess, so I'm very worried about kind of biological attacks and synthetic biology advances. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the Biological Weapons Convention would be like a very obvious place in which like we could try to tackle that. But it seems like it's a, not as strong a convention as maybe it could be. And like the, the, the enforcement is like not what it could be. Do you have any ideas for like how we could Im- improve the BWC in particular? Well, I know there was an attempt a while back to make it a lot stronger with verification and that didn't, that didn't work. And it has, been, it has not really been a significant, we've been talk about that, but nothing really significant, particularly was because it was the U.S. that kind of made that not happen. So as a result, it's never had the equivalent of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Chemical Weapons Convention in terms of having a body that helps to, main sh- help to ensure that states do not do what they're not supposed to do under the treaty. 
And so it's always been like a weaker, quote unquote, weaker structure. It has three people who are supposed to do all the work implementing the tree, which is a lot three. to ask. Yes, three. <laughs> I'm not even sure how many are there right now because it's been three and sometimes people have not been there. So, you know, it, it's, it suffers from that. And so it also suffers from what people could say enforcement, you know, because it doesn't have a mechanism for a surprise inspection or things like yeah. that, like the Chemical Weapons Commission has. Um, it doesn't have things that allow people to run around your facility like the like the International Atomic Energy Agency has. But the discussions take place there. They talk about it. It's not like they don't talk about it. They do have the discussions about emerging technologies and what that effect that will have on the treaty. And they do recognize it. But having an enforcement mechanism, they don't have the ability to somebody who's doing something to do something about it. Yeah, I suppose it's the it's the seed of something that could become more substantial, you know, when the time is right, maybe. Yeah, the the countries can do whatever they wanted to do. They can sit down tomorrow and say, you know, we need to do another, we need to really strengthen this tree. Let's do it in an uh, inspection regime. Countries are sovereign; they can do whatever they want. It's just that countries don't are not ready to do that. Is there potentially a role for philanthropy here to kind of better resource the BWC, or is it like private actors can't just throw money around? Oh no, they could they could definitely okay. throw money. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, maybe. I might look into that and stick out some links because yeah. there could be listeners, I think, who might be very interested in looking at like, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether the BWC could potentially be, be a good place to direct donations. Mm-hmm. If they can't give it to the BWC Implementation Support Unit, which is the three people, they can give it to countries that do things there, you know, or to have research done. I mean, so there's ways in which you can do it. Are there any specific projects that you worked on at State or elsewhere that in retrospect you're really proud of that you think, you know, move the needle? I think the nuclear security summits were great because that definitely created a lot more uh, in a very fast time frame, a lot of focus by country leaders to do a lot in terms of securing nuclear material. And, and as a result, a lot has been done globally on that issue that might not have been done or definitely not as fast. So that's really great. Working on the global partnership against the spread of weapons and materials of mass destruction which is a 30-country organization that's more than just the G7, obviously. And they're all working together to coordinate the programs that they have around the world to prevent WD terrorism. And so that is a really great mission. And I was there at the time that we extended it in 2012. 2012 is when I chaired. That's the first year after, after we extended it. I played a role in that. That was really great. That felt great to be, to be part of the extension of that, uh, indefinite extension of that initiative. And there were a number of things like that not that I was able to be a part of that was great. The GHSA, the Global Security Agenda, the launch of that, being a part of that was really great. So those are examples of kind of getting the right people to talk to one another and to like to, and just to discuss the right issues. Is that kind of very often, like, is that like a, a high leverage point? Because some people might be skeptical. Like, oh, you get people to talk around a table and kind of nothing happens, but that's not the case. It has to be action. I mean, talk, you have to start by talking. We have to get people around the table, have a conversation, figure out what we all want to do, what's the strategy, how we're going to go forward, what's the mission, what's the goal, how countries are going to be involved. But then it has to move to action. And all of these things were things that moved to action. And we actually used the word action in a lot of the things we did. So for the Global Health Security Agenda, we have something called action packages, you know, which we developed a name on purpose because we wanted to focus on the fact that this is not just talk, it's action. And in the Nuclear Security Summit, we had something called action plans. And then the G7 Global Partnership was about activities that were actually going on. How do we coordinate it? And I'm a very much of an action kind of person. I like to talk about, I like to see things at the end of the day, having, having gotten done. So yeah, it's, it is about, about bringing people around the table, but that's just the first part of it. That's the necessary part of it. 
but you really have to move forward after that. So, so your title was ambassador or special envoy? I guess it was both actually. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people use ambassador, but it's sometimes for this ambassador, special envoy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I suppose most people like me might imagine ambassadors are kind of between countries. You're like an ambassador to a specific country, but here, kind of an ambassador on an issue. What? Yeah. What? 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 What is that kind of? What? What do you do day to day as an ambassador of this kind? Well, I did a lot of travel. I mean, it might have been easier <laughs> to be an ambassador of a country because I would have been a lot more, a lot more stationary. Because my portfolio was global. So I literally could be in Africa one week and then the next week in Indonesia. You know, I mean, I literally was all over the world, which is a very exhausting. But because it was more of a focus on an issue rather than a country that was global, my daily, my daily activities was really varied, focusing on any one of the four areas that I worked on on CBRN. And then you added infectious disease on top of that. So I had a lot of different issues. I would hold, um, I would have meetings at the White House. I would host my own meetings at State Department. There were a lot of interagency meetings where, you know, you pull together people from different parts of the U.S. government. I'd be going talking with ambassadors from other, from the embassies. I'd be traveling to go to certain meetings. I'd give a, I have to speak at a conference. Then I'd have to go to chair a meeting. I'd be leading a delegation to, to some event, meeting with folks from multilateral organizations, going to New York for meetings at the U.N., it really varied because there was no set plan. There was no set day that was ever like the other because I had so many different things in my portfolio. So what is what is the goal when you're traveling and talking to these people? Is it usually to kind of get them to care about these issues in the first place or, or to tell them what they can practically do about it or maybe to coordinate them with other groups and be kind of an intermediary who gets everyone on the same page? Yeah, and they, each one had their own their own purpose. For example, if I was going to a meeting of the Global Partnership, then I was going because I was the U.S. representative. And so I was there to push the work of the U.S. to coordinate our programs with other countries. It could be to visit a country like Germany when we were having conversations on why we want to extend the partnership. Or it could be a country to talk about why we want them to, be, to do a certain thing regarding the Nuclear Security Summit. So each one has a different purpose. Then it could be just a conference. You know, they wanted me to speak at a conference and, you know, it was in our interest for me to go there. So they all varied depending on the type of issue it was, the type of weapon it was. It was I, I could be going to the, to the Food and Agriculture Organization to talk about why they need to think more about biosecurity issues. And it really varied. It yeah. really varied. What do you think listeners are most likely to misunderstand about the field that you're in or the work that you do? Just how it's, it's very complex. It's, a, it's, it's juggling a lot of balls. It's not just sitting and, and having conversation. It's a lot of stuff behind the scenes. A lot of the planning, you know, sitting and, and getting down the talking points, getting the talking points cleared with the, with the U.S. government entities within the State Department, pulling together the PowerPoint slides. <laughs> In some cases, just all the work behind the scene that goes on before you actually sit down with your counterpart in another country, you know, the stuff that goes on within your department and, and within the U.S. What's something that you know, your colleagues and kind of, yeah, this peace and security work, uh, what, what, what's something that you think that they get wrong? Somewhere that you disagree? I would say the silos uh, between it, I think, and that's, that's some of that's human nature, some of that's the, the colleagues, not being able to see the connections between some of the issues we work on keeps the ball from moving forward, you know, when it could be, because I think we need to be much more holistic in how we look at some of these things. Do you think that, that if people tried to be less siloed, that there'd just be kind of other problems that would arise, like you'd have not enough specialization or people would feel too scattered across too many areas? 
I think you can have it both ways. I think it can still be working on your issue, but at the same time, have an appreciation for what others are working on, at least understand the role that they play. I do a simulation at the University of Pennsylvania on infectious disease, and we have students from different schools come together and just um, work together. And the goal of it is to say, we're not asking you to be a specialist in every one of these fields. You're going to, you're, you are in the business school or the medical school or nursing school or vet school or communication school or the school of mental health or whatever. And you, what we want, you come here and you bring your specialization. So as part of the team, we are going to look to you to answer certain questions because that's your area. That's a good thing. You know, we need to know that there are people who that's what they do. That's their job. That's what they went to school for. However, at the same time, you're not by yourself. And on these global threat issues like infectious disease, you have to work with other people. That's why it was always a whole government approach when we did a GHSA. And so we want them to at least have an appreciation for the role that others play and to know that I need, I can't do this. I can't answer this. I know Joe over there who I can, I can reach out to and answer that question. So there's kind of downsides to going it alone in something like this, but there's also downsides to trying to bring everyone on board because I guess that could potentially slow you down. Kind of, yeah, you can potentially move as like fast as the as the slowest actor. If it were up to you, do you think the US should try to be more collaborative in this area, or maybe more just like go ahead with projects that it thinks are a good idea? I, I think there's moments for both. I think there's moments for both. I think there's there's definitely times when you have to take the lead, and we've done that. And there are certain times when you need to let other people take the lead. For example, with the global security agenda. There are countries who have stepped up, like Finland and Indonesia and the Netherlands and, you know, Italy, countries who have stepped in and said, we're going to take a leading role. And you want that, you know, and you don't want to always be in front because you want collaborators and you want people to have, you want people to buy into things. They're not going to buy in if they don't have a role, if they don't have a stake, if they, if they don't feel like they're being heard. So the best way, if it's going to be a collaborative global approach, you have to know when to step back and say, you know, maybe I could do this, but you know what? Maybe it's better that I don't. There's a bigger picture here that's more important. Are there any kind of measures or, or projects that you've tried over the course of your career where you kind of recommend that people not try them again, where you think it didn't work out and it's probably not going to work out if people, if people have another go? I guess there, there, there are times when, like, for example, my role was a coordinator of a threat reduction program. So it was a lot of coordination, helping people work together, finding ways in which they can find a common ground. And I think it's always good to recognize when that's not going to work. <laughs> there are certain times when certain issues are so ingrained in, in someone's psyche or they're so in control that it's good to know when, when it's not going to work and not to waste a lot of time on it. Yeah. What in the big picture are kind of the barriers to, to getting more done in this area? It's a kind of cooperation within orgs or between orgs in the US or between countries or maybe just the, the ability to get people's attention in the first place or, or, or knowing actually what would be useful to do? Yeah, I think, it, it, well, it could be a little of all of things. One is, you know, priority. It may not be the most important issue. For example, in the State Department, each one of the bureaus have, you know, just the regional bureaus have their list of areas that's most important. So when they go to a country that's within that, represent that bureau, they have the top five issues that, let's say, the ambassador is going to raise or someone's going to raise when they go visit that country. And as my issue was weapons of mass destruction, for example, I always wanted my issue to be one of those top five. But it may not be because maybe for that country, that is not the U.S. government doesn't think that that's the most important issue there. So a lot of it's competing issues, you know, the funding, you know, making, if, if it's issues not the most important, it may not get the funding that you need for it. Bureaucracy, which can slow things down. 
you know, usually you can get things out, but you can it could definitely slow it down if there's if someone does not want it to go forward. So there's a lot of human human things like that that can also make it difficult. And the silos, silos. People have different kind of models of politics and international relations. And I think some people have the idea that kind of individuals matter. And if kind of if, if you show up somewhere and you're particularly charming and persuasive and make good arguments, and that's going to move the needle. Then there's other people a bit more cynical that it's like, no, countries kind of do what's in their interest and it's structural and kind of, it, yeah, individuals don't, it's very hard for them to change things by, you know, doing a good job in their role. Which one would you say you agree with more? I would have to not, I would have to say both. <laughs> because I think the art of diplomacy is knowing how to be that person that can, you know, a good diplomat knows how to figure out how to get a country to persuade a country to do something. While at the same time, ensuring that the country does do something that's also within its own interest, or else they're not going to agree to do it. You know, it's that balance of, you know, promoting a U.S. policy, while at the same time, ensuring that the country's own interests are not not stepped on. Yeah. What, what are the interests that you might worry about stepping on? I suppose it's like just budgetary issues that you're asking them to spend money, maybe, or like to allocate, you know, a limited management time. To... Yeah, it depends on what's important to that country. So if, if it's a poor country, then it's going to be a, a money issue. So maybe we can help by providing some assistance. You know, if it's expertise, maybe we can help by providing some expertise. So it depends on what the issue is that will help move that country to agreement. How much do you find that people just don't like being told what to do? Is that, is that a concern? Yeah, but you don't you don't phrase it like you're telling them what to do. <laughs> I, I imagine not. <laughs> you you phrase it as a as you're, you're a diplomat. You have a way of talking, and then I mean, sometimes depending on the situation, if it's really you really want something, and you're like told that you have to get this and you don't want, then you, you you may have to do that. But then that's a power thing too, and you know you have to think about how you how you use power. If you want to tell somebody what to do, then you expect them to do it. But that's a power issue too. So something to think about. So the, the global health security agenda was this package of programs that was designed to kind of improve pandemic preparedness and, and improve a bunch of other things about global health security. Mm -hmm. And Tom Inglesby was, was a big fan back in episode 27. I think at that time, it wasn't clear whether it was going to get ongoing funding after 2018. But it seems like it, it's, it's carrying on. It's, it at least has some funding for some of the programs. What parts of it excited you the most and, and are they still going? I think what, what excited me the most was the concept of doing this global initiative that's also a whole of government approach that's working closely with the multilateral organizations and the NGOs. And what I find doing my own research at different, on different types of threats, that that really is a model for trying to deal with things. Is that, you know, you have, to, you have to go all out and you have to really have a whole of government, whole society approach to dealing with some of these threats that's out there. And so that's what, what impressed me was the fact that we were able to pull that together and to do that. And then that's still going on. Well, we were able to get the money, and so it's 2019, so we'll hopefully continue to get money for it. Um, so it's mostly still operating? Oh, yeah, it's still operating. Oh, completely. It's okay. still operating, yeah. Yeah, they're still having meetings on it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely still up. Yeah, are there any positions in, in that the right listener might want to apply for, like where they could potentially push forward the GHSA? It would I mean, the GHSA is, is run by the government structures, so it depends on where a person is located. So in the U.S., for example, there would be jobs at Health and Human Services that's focusing on that, the State Department, Department of Defense. Each one of the agencies and departments would have people who are focused on that issue. Depends on how many people, how much time. It will vary depending on how much stake and how much work the, the agency is doing on that issue or department's doing on that issue. But, you know, that's what you would do. And then there's, there's NGOs that do work on these issues. I mean, these NGOs, the NGOs are doing work on this 
before we had something called the Global Health Security Agenda. There were a number of government agencies, of course, and NGOs who were working on this, and philanthropy and academic institutions. So a lot depends on where you want to come into the issue. Does it have to be government or do you want to work on other things like Tom Inglesby? Academia, yeah. What are the implications of kind of the fact that some countries that have given up WMDs uh, seem to have kind of been, been punished for it in, in, indirectly? So I guess like Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons after the fall of the Soviet Union and then kind of Russia took Crimea. Libya, I think, dismantled its nuclear program. And I guess Gaddafi kind of came to a bad end. Was it like by, by contrast, North Korea now kind of has nukes and that makes it like more untouchable? Well, there are countries who gave them up who didn't necessarily have problems, like Kazakhstan gave them up, Belarus gave them up, South Africa gave them up, Argentina, Brazil decided not to go for it. So, you know, there are countries who have decided not to go that route who have not been quote unquote punished just more. And I don't know if you can call the Ukraine situation punishment or just, I mean, the question is, would Russia have gone in there if they still had them? Maybe not, you know. So there could be a direct line to that. But I wouldn't say, because there are also a lot of cases where there wasn't quote-unquote punishment. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very sad situation because I think Ukraine had an agreement with both the US and Russia over its territorial integrity that yeah. has, has not been honored. And uh, it's, yeah. like, it sets a bad precedent for the future. It does. It does. But hopefully we won't have more countries who want to develop in any ways. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's not have that even be an issue, right? <laughs> Do you think the world would be safer if we got rid of nuclear weapons entirely? I know there's some people who think that, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. Well, if no one has them, then they have to, then if there's not, if no one has them, then it's not even an issue. Well, but, but couldn't it be an issue because then you, everyone will be skittish that potentially another country would very quickly put them back together and, and then they'll be at a... Well, that's a different question. Okay, right. okay yeah. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> if it was sustainable, okay. yeah. If it's sustainable, yes. If it's not, then, then yeah, because then it could start again. So if, if everyone got rid of them and there was an agreement not to build them, then yeah. But if, if, it's not a, if it's not a sustainable agreement or a non-stable situation, then you're back to where you were before. What do you think about the, the US having a no first strike policy? I think Obama considered that. Maybe there was some pushback from the military and it ended up not. Yeah. I know China has a no first use policy. I don't necessarily, as an arms control, non-proliferation person, I, I would not have a problem with it. You know, I think it would be, I think there's merit to having one. I think that helps instill some confidence in the non-proliferation regime that the U.S., you know, is so serious about the issue that they want to actually agree to something like that. Have you ever had to worry about participating in kind of a government program that you thought was a bad idea or like maybe even kind of actively, actively immoral? No. No. Oh, interesting. Okay. I guess, I mean, that situation could arise. Does that ever give you reservations? It, it could arise. It has not arise for me. I'd have a real problem if it was something immoral and whether I would do it and whether I would stay in my job to do it. I mean, I think, I mean, I have the luxury, I think I had the luxury of saying, of of knowing that if something like that happened, I would leave. But I also had the luxury of working in the government with their presence who I liked. Yeah, yeah. And when I, and I wasn't when I didn't like them, so. Yeah, I, I guess I ask, because I, I know that it's something that holds some people back from careers in kind of the civil yeah. service, and maybe especially the military, where it's, you can't just walk away as soon as you disagree with the decision. Yes, yes. And in that respect, well, you have not in the military anymore. But, um. Yeah, I mean, you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision about whether, you know, and, and people often ask the question, I get the question all the time about, particularly right now, about people like the State Department who are, who stay because they're civil servants or they're foreign service officers and, and having to stay in a situation they may not be happy with. But then I always say, well, people raise their hand to the Constitution, not to the person. And so they are in those jobs, you know, promoting the, the, the Constitution and the goals and the vision of the Constitution, not the, not the person or the people or the particular administration at any particular time. But it does get harder. <laughs> yeah. even, even with that argument, 
it it can get very difficult and people do leave and people have been leaving. Speaking of which, yeah, in government, there's always this risk that kind of there'll be a change of government and then the things you were working on will be deprioritized or, mm-hmm. or dismantled. Mm-hmm. I guess, how, how, do, how do people deal with that personally? And is, is, that, is that a big um, issue for morale in the in the civil service? No, because I worked in the 90s and then I left in 2000s after Clinton left, I left, and then I came back and Obama won. And, and, you know, I don't really think in terms of that because it's hard to measure that. I mean, you know, it's hard to say because I've, I've gotten a lot done that I don't think has been necessarily turned turned away. And, you know, another way to look at it is that if you had not done that, you might have been even worse off than you are now. So it's too hard to measure that for me to sit and feel like, you know, it's not worth it or wasn't worth it because it's all getting turned around because it's hard for me to know if it really, what would have happened if I wasn't there? You know, how far we have gotten if I hadn't helped to work on something. So. Yeah, I guess it also swings and roundabouts. Things can, things can get worse. Things yeah, can also get better yeah, later on. Yeah, <laughs> and it might've been worse now because it might've been worse before. So when I announced that I was going to interview, there was a, there was a very enthusiastic response on Twitter and Facebook and we got some unusually good questions submitted by listeners. So I thought I might just uh, go, go through some of them. Okay. You might not be in a position to answer all of them, but uh, right, we, we right. can have a go. So yeah, do you have any ideas on on how to deter North Korea from its current nuclear weapons program? And do you have any idea of like what mistakes were made in the past? And I mean, it's, it's possible this was just kind of inevitable. There, there wasn't a very good place where we could lean on to, to prevent what happened. But Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history, you do get the sense that they really wanted to develop a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, I mean, they withdrew from the treaty and they tested. They withdrew from the non-proliferation treaty and they, and they tested. So... Just looking at the history, it does definitely indicate that that's, that's the direction that they wanted to go. And do you think there's much that can be done now or maybe it's... Uh... Well, now that they have the weapon, it's always a lot harder to make them get rid of it because now they have it. And so it would take... A, and we have... There are histories, there, as we were saying, some countries have given up weapons, but it would be a challenge to figure out what to give them to make them do it. And they, they want the sanctions lifted and that's that would help. But would that really make them stop? I don't know. Yeah, I have the sense that I, I don't really begrudge like what Clinton or Bush or Obama tried to do, or, or indeed Trump, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least most of the time. So it just seems like it would have been so hard to shift them because I mean they've just got so much artillery aimed at Seoul. At the end of the day, if they if this is what they want to do, what are you going to do? It's yeah. very hard to stop. Yeah, um, short of a short of a, a military strike, which I'm not sure. That very risky. Makes, yeah, and you know, yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Do you think it was a mistake for Obama to kind of set the red line about use of chemical weapons against civilians in Syria and then maybe not follow through on it? Well, I think it, you know, I guess what you could say is, um, you know, if you, it, it's difficult to make a threat if you're not going to carry through. And I think that's probably true in any situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess I think it's one of the decisions that he agonized the most about and maybe has the most reservations about in retrospect. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you make some decisions that work and you yeah. make some so, that don't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah, that's life. Um, I guess. They ended up dismantling quite a bit of the chemical weapons program there afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a half victory there. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't as if there was no cost to, yeah, to, to a start. exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. So glass half full, maybe. Yeah. What do you think is kind of the, the annual risk of a, of a nuclear exchange each year, given that it's kind of a risk of you know, malfunctioning technology, like a false, false alarm, like we've had sometimes in the past, or just an escalation of a conventional war between countries? That's hard to say, because I would think that, you know, Countries would want to make sure as much as they can under those under extreme circumstances that something was actually real before they retaliated and did something. So you think countries would have that restraint? Yeah, I think they would because it's too much of a gamble to make a mistake there. And so, you know, I think you want, they would want to make absolutely sure under the circumstance that depends on the person. The person could be trigger happy. 
you know, that could have something to do with it. The person, it depends on what country it is. That would make a big difference. It depends on the what kind of relationships that what was happening with the country at the time. Would factor. I mean, it's a different thing if it's China versus Russia versus if it's the UK. Yeah. <laughs> versus, versus, versus France. France, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there's going to be different reactions, different one, different things you're going to factor in. But I would hasten to say, and hopefully that there would not be an immediate exchange, that they would at least think about what's going on, yeah. you know. How big of an impact does proliferation among minor powers like North Korea or Iran have on the risk of nuclear conflict among superpowers? I wouldn't think a big... It's not super related. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I guess I, I heard a story that it's possible that... So, so if North Korea actually tried to send a nuke to the, to the US mainland and the US tried to intercept it, it would, mm-hmm. Russia would not be able to tell whether they were missile interceptors that were heading in, in practice actually over towards Russia or whether they were actual nuclear weapons. Now, I imagine that they would have anticipated this possibility and would not be about to like immediately launch in this situation. But I suppose it's like there's a possible scenario here where you can imagine it accidentally true. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Said it, it, it could be it could be dependent on a person who's who's there at the time looking and how trigger happy or nervous that person would be. Or is it a person who's more thoughtful, like you said, and said, well, something's happening. Maybe this may not be what I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the problems with this with this line is, is that there's been talk in particularly in the last nuclear posture review of these miniature, these smaller, these weapons that would be kind of escalate. You know, and so they wouldn't be like the real thing. They'd be, a, they'd be, you know, a version that would tactical nuclear weapon. Yeah, that would be kind of like just to say we're not going to throw the big thing yet, but this is a smaller one. So we just want you to know how serious we are, kind of thing. And the problem with that was was raised, which is that a lot of some of the platforms are the same as would have the larger weapons. So if they wouldn't know whether it's a larger or smaller weapon. Yeah. I guess even when it goes off, like in, immediately you might not be able to tell. You may not be able to tell. And so we're hoping that the other side will be calm and casual and say, oh, that's not the big one. That's that's just a warning <laughs> shot. That's the one shot. They're just trying to warn us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just hope that they really think that. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer to my next question, which is uh, what are the least safe weapons in terms of potential accidents? I guess maybe tactical nuclear weapons. It's like there's a, they create a risk of escalation. Yeah, a risk of escalation. Yeah. 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 I suppose bioweapons, but it doesn't seem like many countries have bioweapons these days. No, fortunately, fortunately not, not. Most countries don't, but, and particularly not to deliver them, but, you know, people have laboratories, so every country has a lab, so... And they're all due use. But in terms of being able to make one, you you need the right pathogens and somebody with intent to do harm. What are the the biggest challenges of ensuring biosecurity in in resource-poor settings in particular? Helping them to build the infrastructure to make it secure. That could be building, which we've done, building big fences around the lab, helping them make sure that they have the stuff inside the lab to be safe, you know, that things are, there's locks and things like that, making sure that they have the badges that they need to get in and out, you know, just the internal review and assessment of people who could work there, making sure that they're the right people. There's things like security culture, which is training people to understand what the risks are so that they know what not to do. I guess it sounds like it actually might be easier in these cases because kind of you can spend money on these really obvious things. And just, uh, in fact, it might be easier to do to like get improvements, at least in places where there's like very little money uh, than, than in places mm-hmm. that are already closer to the state of the art. Yeah, as long as you have the hardware and the human factor, because you can have the fence and you can have all of that. But if you don't have a person who understands the importance of security culture, then it still won't work. So you need the, you need the human and the 
infrastructure to work together. Is there anything you think that the US or EU could do to reduce risks between Pakistan and India? Or is that kind of just up to them in reality? I mean, there's always efforts that can be made. There's always there's always conversations that as diplomats that can be had, as ambassadors in country can have with them on a regular basis. So I think there's always, we don't have to wait for them to get angry at each other. I think there's always efforts that can be made to ensure that the relationship is a good one. And when it's not a problem to keep it that way. I would prefer that to waiting till there's a problem and trying to fix something. Quite a lot of people in response to climate change are advocating for bigger uptake of nuclear power. What, what implications would that have for kind of nuclear weapons security, if, if anything at all? Well, it's just more of a concern about more knowledge out there in terms of what can be, who knows, processes about developing, potentially developing a weapon. So that's a concern. You know, whether there'd be any waste, I mean, maybe not a lot, but there, you know, there could be a concern about that as well, about environmental issues and things like that. But for me, it's a lot of, it's a lot of knowledge issue and it's expensive. It's a, it's a really expensive thing. And, and, you know, a lot of countries have to decide if it's worth doing that versus doing other things that are also important right now that they are definitely going to be facing and are facing. So the U.S. is pretty close to kind of state-of-the-art in a lot of these areas, but what, what could it learn from other countries? Or what, what are cases where other countries are maybe doing things better? Making trade-offs, making trade-offs between what's needed and, and not all countries, <laughs> but some countries are better off at understanding the importance of some of these global threats and the importance of needing to address them, but it's also because they're facing them a lot easier and can see them a lot more. I mean, in, in terms of how we deal with countries like how we deal with Iran for the JCPOA Joint Conference of Plan of Action. I think there's some lessons learned about how the how the Europeans and are dealing with it, and even the Russians are dealing with it, and the Chinese are dealing with it. I think it's better than how the U.S. is dealing with it. It's, you know, but I'm an arms control person, so of course I say that. So I think there are definitely I def, there are definitely lessons that we could be learning right now about a number of issues, both hard and soft security. What what are the professional norms in, in the, the US around kind of criticizing governments that came before you or that, or that come after? I suppose there's civil servants and there's like political appointees. Maybe the rules are a bit different. Yeah, you know, yeah, you have a political, I was a political appointee and I was also a civil servant at one time. So I understand the importance of just as a civil servant or as a foreign service officer that you stay, you know, regardless of who's in charge. But um yeah, it's not an easy one, but you said what's the, the trade-offs? Oh, no, I suppose, like, what are the norms about criticizing? Because I've had some people just be unwilling to kind of criticize other other governments. There's maybe some kind well, of... Well, I think or... I would say that we've broken some norms. I see. <laughs> I would say we've broken some norms. I mean, like I said, you have a new administration every four or eight years, right? Normally, normally, I'm not going to say all the time, but normally... You stick by the agreements that were made because what's the point of having a treaty if you're going to change it every four years or eight years? You normally stick with the agreements that were made before you, and that's been a problem. The norms of how we treat other leaders and talk to other leaders and speak about other leaders has definitely been kind of shifted. shifted. <laughs> uh, you should be a diplomat. Yeah. <laughs> has shifted. So I think there was a number of norms that are not written down in books. Yeah, you know, we don't exactly. write down, you know, you know, you don't call people names. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't call people who are leaders of other countries, particularly allies, names. I don't know if that's ever written anywhere. Yeah. It's kind of a norm. Kind of, yeah, it's, just, exactly. it's, just, it's also respect. It's just, it's just respect for somebody else. Um, so yeah, we've, we've broken a few of those. 
I suppose as a result, it seems like there's more people under the Obama administration who are willing to criticize the current administration, uh, perhaps than, than was there. There was a bit more of a ceasefire in the past. Well, you know, people do their time and they go away, you know, and you see them around, you see presidents, former presidents around, but they don't usually have the limelight because they're more than happy just to live their life now. You yeah. know, they so it's not an easy job. And if they're there for eight years, they age, they look tired, <laughs> they, they look totally different because it's not an easy they're job. They're going to get some sleep. Yeah, and they like that. They're happy to do that. But it's been, yeah, we've seen a lot more of the former administration folks now because there's been so much concern, I guess the best way to put it, about about what's been going on. Yeah, I think it's interesting that people criticize Obama for reducing U.S. credibility by, by not following through in the in the Syria chemical weapons case. But of course, like withdrawing from all of these treaties that the U.S. has made, I think has surely done like much more to kind of damage the U.S.'s credibility and yeah. reputation for like following through on the things that it says. I, I mean, even if you think the Iran deal what, what was a bad idea, and I, there's, there's some people I respect who I mm-hmm. think have that view that it was like maybe the U.S. should have done something different. Having signed it, it seems like it's a very different question whether you should renege on the deal. Uh, and that seems well, very worrying to me as a, as a precedent for like, why, why would other countries engage on these issues? Well, that's the problem. I mean, you know, and it was it was in everyone's interest. And maybe I mean, the, the criticism that I hear is maybe it should have included other things and, you know, but that was not the purpose of the agreement. It was achieving what they sat down to do, which was to reduce the chances of Iran developing a nuclear weapon. People, if people think back to that time frame and just how frantic it was with us going back and forth with Iran and uh, our allies back and forth, you want a nuclear weapon? No, we're not. You're developing a nuclear weapon? No, we're not. <laughs> we, we, they were saying, well, we're just doing peaceful uses. That's what's allowed in the treaty. And we're saying, yeah, we know it's allowed in the treaty, but we also know what you're doing. It was crazy back and forth. And so if we remember back then, just how much, it, how difficult it was, and then you realize that that treaty was the right treaty for what we needed to get done. And if it didn't address other issues, then you don't tear up the treaty. What you do is you find a way to have more negotiations on other things. But now if you, but if you try to tear up the treaty, which do you, then you don't have anything. And then you just start from scratch. And why would they sit down with you again? If I sat down with somebody and I had an agreement with them and I was doing what I was supposed to do and they said, sorry, we don't like the treaty. And I'm like, but I'm doing what you said I was supposed to do. I got inspectors running all around my facility. They're, everyone's saying that I'm compliant and that you still want to leave and I haven't violated. So why would I sit down? <laughs> why would I sit down and have another agreement? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, that doesn't mean it can't ever happen, but it does make it more difficult, difficult to see why somebody would want to do it again. And so for me, as a lawyer, international lawyer that negotiated treaties, you just keep it. Those treaties are too hard to get. Once you get it, you keep it. And if you want to add more things, you add more things. But tearing up treaties in arms control is just very concerning because it's just too hard to get those things done. Yeah. I mean, at, at the time, it, it looked pretty sensible to me. It, it definitely looked like a step forward. And I guess it's like, it's not everything that you'd want, but it's kind of, that's the nature of these agreements is that you got to, everyone only gets half of what they want. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that surprised me was that you'd think that Israel would have the greatest interest interest in this in this agreement because they're most in the firing line for any weapons that Iran gets. And yet Netanyahu was absolutely set against it. And I couldn't quite understand the reasons that he was giving, but I guess I guess it gave me pause because like, well, you know, Israel has a lot of skin in the game here and they they don't seem so keen. And or at least like one, one half of Israel wasn't so keen. I'm yeah. just like... <laughs> I was yeah. just like, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, 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 they have their reasons, but you also have to look, you also have to factor in what makes sense from the global community sense. I guess maybe they were hoping that just the U.S. would go to war uh, with, with Iran. But then it's like that maybe is an interest of, of every every other country that happened. Well, I think there's definitely a, a, there's an interest in not having things go well. You know, I mean, I think having contentious issues with the U.S. is probably more what they would like, I would think. 
Were there any improvements to the safety technology for nuclear weapons or other weapons in the United States during your time in government? I would say so. I was much more on the security side, not as much on the safety side, but I would say yes, because we also had what happened in Japan and the, the accident in Japan, Fukushima. I think that that resulted in a, quite a bit of work on safety issues. So while that's not my area as well on the security side of nuclear issues, I, I'm, yes, I'm just been a lot done on that. Okay, so let's let's move on and talk a little bit more directly about how listeners might be able to contribute to solving these problems with their own careers. So you've worked in the military, uh, mm-hmm. civilian government, um, and outside of government, kind of think tanks and universities now. Do you have any sense of where someone can kind of get, get the most leverage if you just have a free hand to choose between, between any of these and you don't have like a super good personal fit for one over the other? I would say probably government. And that may depend on where a person works. In the US, at least, we have a, we have, great opportunities with both the government and outside government. We have the ability to go back and forth between government and outside government. So there's a, there's a certain luxury in being able to find different ways to impact uh, policy. But obviously, if you want, since policy is real, most directly made in government, that's the first place, if that's what somebody wants to do. I mean, it's impacted by like think tanks and what they write and, and think tanks want to impact policy. So there's uh, NGOs too. So there's other ways to impact policy, but the most direct ways in government. Yeah, interesting. That, that's a pretty consistent answer that I've gotten to this kind of question. Which uh, So I suppose the, the system is someone that you, when you get the chance to go into government, because you're like, you're allied with the people who are in control, then it's like you do that. And then when, when you don't, then you go out and kind of mm. bide your time maybe in yeah. <laughs> university. So. Well, that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people, yeah. you know, when they're, especially political appointees, they'll leave and then go back. Yeah, so kind of, I guess, like build up your expertise and reputation and then, yeah, wait for the right moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, what, what about careers in electoral politics or, or nonprofits? Is, is there anything valuable that people, that people can do there? I guess I worry that, you know, running for Congress, you get torn between so many different ways that if your interest is kind of weapons control or like peace and security, it's gonna, it might be actually very hard to do that as an elected representative. Yes, it is more challenging to do it as, a, as an elected representative. But, you know, in the NGO world, it's, you, you could do a lot. You know, because you mentioned NGOs, you could do a lot with, with that. And, and they do a lot. Yeah. Are there any NGOs you want to highlight that you think do, do really good work? Um, well, one's Arms Control Association, because I've been working with them for many years. I'm on the board. Um, there's so many. There's there's an organization called WAND, which focuses on women and looking at somebody's hard security issues. That's my organization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> WCAPS. We'll talk about that in a second. Yes. There's Union of Concerned Scientists which does really great work. There's Plowshares. Plowshares does work as a, as a funder. There's so many. Nuclear There's Threat Initiative? NTI, yes. I mean, I mean, I can just... <laughs> get, get going. <laughs> I can go on. Because I, I mean, I funded a lot of groups when I was at the Ford Foundation. And I also work with a lot of groups now. So yeah, there's quite a few. So if someone wanted to go into a career in, in one of these organizations, like, yeah, what should they study and kind of what kind of career capital can they build up um, in their 20s to, 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 to get themselves? Well, you know, it's hard to, I mean, obviously international relations is, is important, public policy issues, uh, international security is good, diplomacy, if that's a possibility, foreign service, like Georgetown is a foreign service school would be good, government, you know, some schools have government schools. All of those are good. And of course, doing internships and fellowships are ways to, to complete your resume, <laughs> put the right things in a resume to get jobs. 
So those those kind of things, but also scientists. I mean, we have biologists and nuclear physicists and chemists who who are doing work on the policy space. We have AAAS fellows, which are scientists, a lot of biologists who get involved in policy work. And we need those for like the weapons of mass destruction. You need the scientists who can tell you what's possible and what's not possible. It seems, yeah, like a lot of these issues are very technical. Like you really need scientists and engineers mm-hmm. uh, to to, <laughs> to understand yeah. them. How much, I guess, do you have to work very closely with them? Because I suppose your, your background isn't as much in, in science and tech. It depends. I mean, sometimes you do because it may be an issue that, you know, you just need their perspective and we say, what, what's possible? What can, what, can we, what can we agree to? We don't want to make a mistake and say we can do something we really can't. So just having them in the mix, having them at the meetings and, you know, in the offices and a lot of time it's just clearing on documents, having them clearing things is important because then they could look at documents and say, no, cross this is rubbish. out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's why we go through the whole clearance process is because we want to make sure that what we're, what we're doing makes sense. Yeah, interesting. So what is the path for someone who's kind of maybe graduated in physics or chemistry or engineering who, who wants to go into this? I guess it's the AAAS fellowship, which we've... The AAAS fellowship. Is there anything um, else? Um, I mean, I guess they could just apply to jobs for the federal government like anyone else. There's the NGO route that they can get involved in as a think tank route. And all of these have potential avenues into the government. So, you know, it's getting, getting out there, working in these kind of institutions. It's always good to write things in DC, very much into writing articles, op-eds, blogs, yeah. getting your name out there. It's a lot of getting your name out there with people knowing who you are. That's a big deal in DC. <laughs> <laughs> are there any kind of post-grad courses for people from a more technical side who want to work on peace and security? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of graduate courses, particularly in D.C. You it's know, Georgetown. Or... Georgetown, George Washington, American. You know, they all have George Mason. They all have uh, all the Georges. <laughs> <laughs> all the Georges in American. They have graduate programs. How separate is the Foreign Service and, and the Civil Service in the U.S.? Are, are they pretty different tracks? A lot of people move between them pretty freely. Usually, if you're in Foreign Service, you stay in Foreign Service, you know, because you have to take a particular exam to get into the Foreign Service. It is its own track within State Department. I see. And what's distinctive about those kinds of roles? Do, do you think they're particularly impactful? Or Well, Foreign Service is, you know, you that's the one where you travel every three or four years, sometimes two years, depending on, or even one year, depending on where you happen to be. And so you, you know, you bid and you go to a different embassy every two, three years. Yeah. And you may go back to Maine State and, and State in uh, Washington, D.C. for two, three years. So they're the, they're, the, they're the folks who work at our embassies, you know, and our missions around the world. And civil servants at state, for example, normally stay in the U.S. And they're not, they're not in that same kind of cycle of every two or three years. A lot of them work in a functional bureaus at state, which are versus the regional bureaus at state. One's obviously the two are clearly, one's regional, one's functional. So when I, so like I was a civil servant before I was a political appointee. I wasn't a foreign service officer. So it's a job like everyone else. You know, it's a civil service job. So within the executive branch, it seems like there's a, there's a bunch of different tracks. So we've got diplomacy. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we've got like just like kind of standard civil service. We've got like intelligence services. And then there's the military. And then I guess there's also law enforcement. Yeah. Well, the diplomacy would be more like the foreign service folks. Then there's the military, of course, yeah. which is self-explanatory. Intel was just self-explanatory. You could have military who were intel, military intel, Navy intel, for example, or CIA. And then I guess like the Biological Weapons Convention enforcement is actually in the FBI, right? There may be, though, there's people in the FBI who may focus on bio issues. There's people in the FBI who focus on a lot of different things that have to do with FBI-type work. But they do have folks who work on WMD issues as well. Do you have any view on, I guess, which of these tracks seems particularly promising for someone focused on, yeah, we- weapons control? Or maybe like kind of who's a good fit for, for which one? 
It depends on what kind of which you want to do. If you want to do nuclear issues, Department of Energy makes sense. You could also do that work at DNRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You could do it at State Department. You could do it a lot. Of, you could even Department of Homeland Security does work some work on that. So it depends on what area you want to work on. Bio, that could be, depending on what it is, State Department, Health and Human Services, Civil Disease Control, Agency for International Development, USAID. It could be, it depends on what your issue is that you're interested in and where you want to be within the U.S. government doing it. Or you can be an NGO world. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's always that. Is, is there any way of quantifying kind of how many people are in this space? We're we talking thousands, tens of thousands. Oh, God, it's hard to quantify. Yeah. It's pretty hard. I mean, I wouldn't even know. In a, in a whole WMD space in the U.S., wow, thousands probably. Thousands, okay, yeah. I guess it's large enough that someone who wants to get into it has a, has a reasonable shot, that there's like a oh, lot yeah. of different angles in, it sounds like. Well, yeah, there's a lot of reasonable shots. I mean, it's not, I mean, working in the federal government is not, it is, it is kind of opaque and there are a number of direct routes into it a number of fellowships that people can take advantage of to get directly into the government uh, rather than having to bang on the doors. It's very hard if you don't know anyone, if you haven't been here for a while to go to the different events to meet people. And, you know, it's so it is kind of opaque. And I can imagine I came through something called the Presidential Management Fellowship Program. So I was in one of those what they call direct routes in here into the government. But you apply, they have, you know, they have jobs openings and you apply for the jobs unless you have a direct route in there. Yeah, so my next question was going to be that a lot of listeners would like to have a kind of a career that resembles your one to some extent, but they kind of don't have a sense of how, what first steps can they take to, to, to get their foot in the door, to, to meet people in D.C., to get started. Do, do you have any, any, any advice for someone in that situation? Um, we are, we'll try to get a fellowship or an internship into D.C. I mean, there's a number of organizations and NGOs and think tanks that have summer internships or just regular internships. Because once you, you want to get here and you want to meet people. And not here. You want to get there and you want to meet people and you want to go to the events and be around. And it's a lot easier to do if you're in D.C. than if you're not in D.C. But you, but anyone can apply for the fellowships and internships. I would, or either just a regular one at state or a regular one at the NGOs or one of these direct ones that you can get into, like the one I did. Do you have anything to say about the, the different internal cultures of the of the various organizations? Because I imagine someone, you know, might be the right fit for state, but not so much for the military. Yeah, they are, they, are, they all have their own culture. I like, I you know, like you know, having been in the military, DOD has its own culture, state has its own culture, Department of Energy has its own culture, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, they each have their own culture. And sometimes you don't really know which culture you fit your personality until you get there. But if you like the diplomacy culture, if you like to, to be one to move people by, sway people by your words, <laughs> and you like that kind of a, you know, that kind of a culture, you like kind of a personality, the state, if you're much more of a, you know, a lot harder in how you, if you're, if you're a military list, yeah. then you want to do DOD, you know, yeah, so it's, yeah. you know, part of it, part of it is knowing their culture, but part of it is, you know, I didn't think about that. I just kind of worked, through, I worked at places that were doing the things I wanted to do. And then I just kind of figured it out. Yeah, so, so is the culture of the Department of Defense kind of how you might imagine it to be? Or are there any surprises? No, not really. No, okay. <laughs> not really. It's it's very bureaucratic. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it a lot, yeah. I suppose these are, these are all massive orgs, so maybe they're all bureaucratic to some extent. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Is there they any all difference? all have bureaucracy. They're, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought DOD had a little bit more than state. Yeah. But state has a lot of bureaucracy too. But I think yeah. there's just more people that have to sign off things at, at DOD. 
a lot of more people have to watch things, but they both they both have a lot. I guess states a lot small. I guess Department of Defense. I've just I can't remember the exact numbers, but the number of staff is just. Yeah, they have a they have a much bigger building than yeah. state. <laughs> but state has embassies around the world, so even though they have bases around the world, so it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Yeah, is there anything you'd want to say about the the culture of the intelligence services and, and what role they play in the in the bigger picture here? They play a very important role of giving us information of what's out there. I mean, I was in Navy Intel, and you know, it's the role of of getting the information for the policymakers so they can make better decisions. Are you glad that you uh, went into the military early on in mm-hmm. your career? Did, did that help a lot? Oh yeah, I'm glad I went. It was a great culture. I mean, I, I I enjoyed all the experiences that I've had. I was reservist for the time. I wasn't. I was only. I was called up for one year out of the 22 years I was in. But I, I really enjoyed. It. I miss it. Uh, what, what did you enjoy about it? The camaraderie, the rules in a way. I mean, I I I didn't want it 24 hours a day, which is why I was never full time. But the camaraderie is great. I have so many great memories of. I had fun. They actually had a lot of laughs. So that's not what I imagined. I know. One would, <laughs> would not think that. But Maybe I'm not actually, cut out for it. But. <laughs> but I actually had, I mean, it was, poor. I mean, you know, I remember going on for active duty for a year and, um, you know, that was, there was a lot of different kind of experiences there, but I've had, I've had a lot of, I have a lot of fun memories of being in the, in the military more than I, I started out just thinking I'd only be in there for six years. And I started out in the Navy. I mean, I started in the Air Force, went over to the Navy. And stayed a lot longer than I ever ever thought I would stay. Do you think that if you hadn't started out in the military early, that it would have been kind of harder to get promoted and, and, and to advance in your career the way that you did? Or was that just like one of many options that you could have taken? Well, like, yeah, my, my military career, was, it was reservist. I only was there one week in a month, two weeks a year, even though at times it was a lot more than that. But that was my commitment. So it didn't really interfere with my progression in life because it was just one week in a month. It, it was a perfect situation. Did, did it keep you in shape? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it had to do with the shape. And, you know, it was like, it was just, it was fun. And um, it seemed like those weekends would come by so fast. I was like, <laughs> I was just, wasn't I just here? <laughs> but I got some great deployments. I love being on an aircraft carrier. I thought that was the most fun thing in the world. I love being on ships. Love being on ships. The more wavy, the more I liked it. <laughs> How did you feel being called? It was during the, the Iraq War, right? I was called in 2006. And I went down to Central Command down in Tampa. And I was supposed to go to I was supposed to go to Iraq, and then the person I was supposed to replace didn't leave, so they sent me down to Tampa instead. Okay, yeah, interesting. Was that exciting or a bit frustrating? Maybe to be called to you know when you're called up, it's always a little it's, it's a little disorienting, yeah. orientating. But you know people were getting called up, so I, it, it was just a matter of time before I got mine. I had just gotten to the Ford Foundation, so I was only there for like I think a year and a half before I got called up. But I was I was so sure that would never happen. But it was an it was quite an experience going down to Tampa because, like I said, I thought I was going to go to Iraq and then I and then it changed. I went to Tampa, and I would have been fine going to Iraq too because everybody I knew came back because of you know naval intel. So we were we were not out on the convoys or anything. We were right. in a in a space. Yeah. But I, I I actually wanted to go. I actually wanted to go and see what was going on for myself. But it turned out fine. I went to Tampa. I enjoyed it. I make mean, it was I had a lot of fun. Yeah, as I recall, things weren't going so well in 2006. That was like a difficult, that was a difficult time when people were starting to worry. That was, I guess, a a mistake. Yeah, yeah. But 
even if you have reservations about it, potentially it can you, <laughs> there's this interesting thing where, so Australia joined the US in the Iraq war. And I guess I think it was a mistake to have gone probably into Iraq in the first place. But then I think actually, given that the US was going in, maybe Australia should have joined because the, there's this great documentary, but it basically seems like it was massively under-resourced, the work that came after, after the military victory. And I think if there'd been you know, more forethought and more people on the ground, that actually it could have worked out much, much better than it did. The, the film is no end in sight. It's a great documentary if you haven't seen it. So I think it was made in 2006 or 2007. Oh, okay. I think it was kind of analyzing the mistakes made in 2004 that allowed things to drag out maybe a little. No, that would be interesting to see. I, I think like dis- disbanding the Iraqi military, I think, is one that people look back on as like a, a, a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Left a lot of people uh, without. Well, I, I wonder how it's going to look with, with Trump and decision about Syria. I think that's going to have a lot of repercussions. Yeah. Do you have any other kind of key advice for someone who, who's in their 20s and 30s who's like wants to pursue a career in the, um, the executive branch? Yeah. I mean, keep keep pursuing it. Yeah. It's not it's not like like. You know, it, it is a bit opaque, particularly if you're not in D.C., but if you really want to work on it, I mean, and, and you can do what I did. I started working in city government and then I went to state and then I went to federal. So even if you cannot get a job in the federal government, there may be interesting job at state and in, in state that you're working in, in the capital or even in the city. It's still federal jobs and, you know, you can still get a perspective that you get from working for the government. And then, you know, maybe something eventually will open up, but I wouldn't give up. I would just kind of keep at it if that's what they really wanted. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like pretty often people might have to take kind of stepping stone roles to get into the position that they ultimately want to get into. Yeah. And it may mean like, I mean, I remember I did a couple of volunteer kind of jobs just to get my, just to get exposure and to put it on my resume. And sometimes you have to do that and it's not easy, but you may have to do something and not get paid just so that you can get put on your resume. It's a lot. I mean, I did a lot of resume building. Uh, I think it shows. <laughs> yes, it what do I need to do to get this? And so I did that. Yeah, interesting. I think sometimes people come to us and they're saying, oh, I, w- I want to take this role as a stepping stone, but then I'm not sure. Actually, it could um, disadvantage me because then I'll get typecast as doing this other kind of role. And then it will be hard, in fact, to move into the area yeah. that I really want to be. Do you have any idea of how people can figure that out? Maybe they just have to talk to people in the area and find out how it, how it looks. Yeah, I mean, it, talking to people is always good. Talking to mentors, getting their getting their thoughts on what makes sense, particularly talking to people who are in those fields. I was a little I was a little crazy about it. I just always did what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't think about. <laughs> I mean, it's like when opportunities turned up, and I'm still like that. When an opportunity opens up and it makes sense, I'll I I usually just go for it. And um, you know, my career has always I've done a lot of things. There's always been like a constant thread throughout all of it, which has been weapons of mass destruction. So even though I went from the military to congressional commissions, to government, to academia, to philanthropy, it was all, there was always one thread and it was always WMD. Yeah. So a listener might, might, might hear this and then they, perhaps they moved to DC, but they don't have that many connections there. What, how, do they, how do they get invited to the right parties? Are there kind of networking events? They get- yeah. Oh, there's always networking. There's always happy hours. My organization holds happy hours. You go to happy hours, you meet people. And one thing always leads to the next. You know, you just kind of start by doing that. And there's so much going on. There's conferences you can go to and meet people, networking events or networking events. I mean, there's a lot going on. Join organizations that will, you know, that have events going on that you can go to. So you're going to have to put yourself forward. But if you're willing to do that, then you can, you can definitely break in. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. exactly. how, how much of the personal skills matter then? Because if you're someone who's quite shy, it sounds like it might be a bit more challenging. Yes, because you have to know how to make small talk. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's just, and that's just a matter of practice. Yeah. Like everything else, I mean, you know, you could take a class on small talk. Really? They, they have classes? I don't, I don't know. I'm just joking. <laughs> right? It wouldn't surprise me. Like, I wouldn't either. Yeah. I really wouldn't either. Yeah. They probably would call it like how to network. Yeah, and there, see, yeah. there are webinars and things about how to network. So 
But yeah, I mean, you can do something like that. Just do a webinar or just, you know, go out with friends who are more open and kind of just kind of piggyback off them, you know, until you're just more comfortable. I, I mean, I, the gift of gab, I only, I like people. I like to talk to people, but I'm much more of a person like, I will, I will zero in on a person and like, let's sit down and have a chat. And I'll do that throughout the, the time. You know, I like to get to know people a little better than have like, but I, I, but I know the gift of gab. I know that there's a, there's a, there's a role for that. Is that something you developed or? Uh... I, yeah, because I wasn't naturally like that. You know, once I know a person, forget about it, you know, I mean, or even once I have that, once I have that first connection, it's fine. But just walking up to somebody who you don't know. It's, it's, it's daunting if you're not good at it. So there is, but the more you do it, it's like anything else. The more you do it, you better get at it. Do you have any advice on kind of charming people in the in the ambassador role? Would you kind of go read their blog posts or like, and then kind of comment or like show that you admired something that they've done in order to, to warm um, them up? Or is that maybe it's too late an, in the career for that? When I was an ambassador? Yeah. Oh, I, it was much easier. I see, right. Okay. <laughs> people wanted to talk to me. Uh, right, I see. <laughs> <laughs> or I could say I'm ambassador and that made it easier for me. And But I think that helped me to do it now because... You know, you just don't, I think like most things, when you don't think about things, things are easier. And if you don't think about it and you go to somebody and you say hi, you introduce yourself to them, to him or her, it's just a lot easier. If you sit here and think, what am I going to say? Do I have the right thing to say? How are they going to react? So you sit here thinking about all this stuff and, and you're still standing in the exact same spot, you know? Yeah, I know a lot of people feel kind of skeevy about networking when they're younger, but I think, so, well, what if you just realize that everyone has some interesting story and you just have to find it by like asking the right questions. And maybe also just that you can potentially do people favors. So it's mm-hmm. not, this isn't a matter of like extracting resources from other people. It's a matter of like helping one another yeah. and maybe it can make you feel a bit better about it. Yeah. And people be who, and you may go up to somebody who has the same hesitation. They'd be so happy to see you say something. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, hello, sure. how are you? <laughs> yeah, completely. What are the best reasons not to pursue the kind of career that, that you've done? What, what, what are the downsides? A lot of travel. I get. To, it was. I was very. I was very tired by the time I left. I mean, all of it was my own fault because I would try try to do everything. But you're not stationary, and if you want to be stationary and have a big family and have a dog and a cat and watch the flowers grow, you're not going to be able to do that because you're traveling a lot. You know. But you could balance it more because I didn't really balance a lot. I just kind of traveled. But you can balance it if you're in control of your schedule. Did you regret that, or are you kind of glad that you lived the? I don't regret a lot of things in my life. Um, there's not a lot. Of, there are a couple of things I do regret, but I don't. I don't regret a lot. And so, no. I mean, I came out healthy. Yeah. You know, I still travel. I travel a lot less. I definitely don't do a lot of international travel anymore. No, knock on wood. No, no bad health effects. That's the most important thing to me. Yeah, interesting. And I guess if if you hadn't gone into government, what what else can you imagine yourself having done? Well, first of all, said I always wanted to work in government. So yeah. that's a start. <laughs> even even when I was young, I was I had the calling to work in public service. But my other passion is animals. I would have, I would love to be a veterinarian, and I would love to work with the big animals in Africa. That's what I say. I just leave me. I'm just gonna go work with the big cats and the and the you know anywhere there's a big animal. That's what I would do. But I I love animals. That's what I would do something in that. So I know some people in government who are vegan who kind of keep that a secret because they're worried that people might judge them maybe. Or like, I guess maybe it's more of a conformist culture perhaps in D.C. as people, people are worried about sticking out in some ways. I guess is that something that you kept under wraps? Or? No, it's on my Twitter account. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> on nice. Twitter it says vegan. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that I, I don't eat animals. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, no, I'm not with you. <laughs> um, okay, so no shame. <laughs> yeah, so people don't have to uh, kind of kind of hide their personal like uh, beliefs that much. Uh, yeah, but you know, I think it's changing. I think that's changing because I I know I know quite a few people who are vegan. You know, and, and when I go out to eat, 
I mean, there was one experience where I was at a, an event for the weekend and I sat at the table and everybody but two people were vegan. So it's, it's uh, and if you go to college campuses around the U.S., I was at the University of Minnesota last week and, you know, they have so many vegan restaurants around and it's, they're full. I went to one and there are people standing online. Really good food too. So I think that's changing. I'm sure in some parts of the U.S., for example, it's not. I'm sure the places where it's really heavy meat, that's not the case. But there's a lot of people who are who are now not, not eating meat. Yeah. Yeah, we just moved to London recently. I think it's even bigger here. Just like so many vegan restaurants around and uh, it's a popular, fashionable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, think, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, and, there's, and you find a good one. It's like, I mean, they're really, every time I go back, there's more and more. They keep growing. Was that ever an issue traveling all around the world that you'd have to let people? I've only been, I've only been vegan about four years now, three or four years now. But I was never a big meat eater. But I do know people who were vegan when I was traveling. And it was difficult, particularly parts of the world where they eat a lot of meat. That's not so common. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to find a salad. You can always find a salad someplace. But now restaurants, even the ones that I see overseas, are getting better at that, giving more options. Yeah. What, what, what convinced you four years ago? Like I was saying, I never, I, I never was a big meat eater. And so when I decided to, and it was a slow process. I didn't stop like one day. It was like, Certain things I had stopped eating anyway. I already stopped eating pork. I would have a bacon once in a blue moon. I had stopped eating steaks. I'd have a hamburger once in a while. And it, it was just gradual. It just gradual. And then it just, and then I just made a decision just to stop. And then, you know, I, lo- I love animals. So the, the combination of that and it just kind of made it, it made it sensible. It made a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, finally, let's talk some more about the work you're doing at the moment with uh, WCAPS. So yeah, after leaving State Department uh, in 2017, you decided to set up this new nonprofit, Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security and Conflict Transformation. What motivated you to do that? I just wanted to try to see if there's a way to make the policy making more diverse. It's not very diverse in the U.S. I'm not sure how it is everywhere, but I know in the U.S. it's not very diverse at all. So, and I just realized, I just think we'll have much better policies if we could have much, much more diverse, or at least have policies that's better informed by different perspectives and different cultures, and different backgrounds. And so I think it's not, in any issue, not just foreign policy, it's good not to have the same thinking people around the room making decisions particularly if they're decisions like foreign policy that affect other countries, like if they're decisions that are going to have such huge impact on different types of people, it makes sense to have different types of people who are also in the room trying to help make those decisions, you know, and steering, helping to steer the right direction for the policies. Is foreign policy especially non-diverse or is it just kind of decent? Foreign policy is very non-diverse. International security is very non-diverse. Now, there are more women in those fields now than before, but there's still a lot needs to be done and particularly for people of color. So is the goal to encourage more women of color to go in and, and start careers in, in this area or make it easier for them to, to do that or to, to help them reach leadership roles over the course of their career or kind of all of the above? It's kind of all of the above because it's, I mean, it's, there's certain, there's different aspects of the problem. And so you kind of, it kind of attacks different ones. One is increasing interest on any issues. We're developing a pipeline program that's going to do that, starting at junior high school and talking about these issues of peace and security. It's about empowering them. And so we have these great podcasts that in anyone at any time, anywhere could just listen to women who have been in the field and how they got into it and the challenges, just so that people know they're not by themselves. <laughs> And it's also trying to create a desire to stay in it. You know, our mid-career, a lot of mid-career kind of stuff. Yeah. What do you think are the, are the, are the biggest barriers to increasing representation? Do, um, do, do women of color maybe leave disproportionately over the course of their careers? Or? Well, one is, one is supply and demand. One is that there's not enough going into the fields. 
or staying in the fields, particularly for women. There's a lot more now, but still we have to get them to want to stay. For people of color, it's more, it's also, it's not just staying, it's getting the interest in some of these issues and helping them understand how these issues how interrelate to domestic issues that they tend to care more about for obvious reasons. So, and this culture, it's, and then the demand is the, the, the culture, which is very traditional white male. And it's, it's, it's stayed that way for years. It's still that way. Is there, is there much progress on the internal culture to make it more welcoming to wider range of people? Not, not right now. <laughs> not right now. <laughs> sure. Not right now. Yeah. There definitely was when I was in the Obama administration. There's certainly a lot less now. But it's also, but even with the Obama administration, it, it's more than just administration. It's the culture within departments that have to really make a difference. And it's kind of organizational culture is pretty persistent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Culture is, culture is naturally resistant because it's what people have been growing up to believe. And so we are naturally, subconsciously always thinking what we've been told since we were kids. So it's just resistant to change as a rule. And so that's one reason why it's so tough. So there's kind of two different benefits I can see WTAPs having, which are, and I'm kind of curious to know which one you think is bigger. So, so one is um, just, this is really important work and you want to have lots of people aspiring to go into it from all across society so that you can kind of get, get the very best people doing this work that is like, working on these really important problems. The other one is that, you know, even if you don't get more people aspiring to work on it, you have a wider range of people with different experience and different knowledge going into it, which might hopefully improve decision making, I guess, especially given that we're talking about something that involves coordination across many different cultures all over the world. If, yeah. if everyone's just cut from the same cloth, then that, that can be a problem. Yeah. Is it kind of focused on both of them equally or? Yeah. I mean, it, maybe not always equally, but, but definitely focused on both of them. Because like I said, it's a complex problem and, it, and there's different entry points in, in terms of how to try to fix it. And you're not going to, if you want to have more people in the field at the policymaking level, you got to have more people who are entering the field and who stay in the field. I will still never get up to make the decision-making process. So, I mean, it's, it's a little both. Given the importance of kind of cross-cultural literacy in, in, this, in this work, do you think it could be useful to get a lot more kind of first-generation immigrants to the U.S. working in it who might have connections to other countries that they could use? Yeah, I mean, diaspora is very important. And, and you know, when we're talking about policies of other countries, it's good to have, it'd be nice to have people in those discussions who understand the culture, you know, and who can say, this is probably the best route. I know people there. I'm from there. <laughs> you may want to consider these things. And they're not part of these discussions. I guess, are there issues with security clearances for first-generation immigrants? Yeah, I mean, security clearances is definitely an issue for many, you know, in terms of places they've been and having to track all that down and trying to track down their history. It's definitely a concern. So what kinds of projects does WCAPS run to, to improve the situation and, and, and why choose those ones over others? Well, WCAPS does a number of things. I mean, when I think about what we're trying to do, I think about what are the fundamental things that one would need to feel empowered, to be engaged. So a lot of the, a lot of the programs speak to young women and mid-career women. So we, have, we do networking so people can know. One of the problems is that people are saying, we don't know who else is doing this stuff. We don't know who else is working in these areas. We know there's other people, but we don't know who they are. So that's been very valuable. And people have been very forthcoming in terms of connecting with each other. We have this amazing, very active listserv where people are sharing information, sharing jobs, all kinds of things. So the network has been really important and was really demanded. One is mentorship, another is a mentorship program because people really need mentors and they really want mentors. We do, as I said, we do podcasts and webinars. Webinars are just on all types of issues. The podcast, we have like 33 podcasts so far, women of color talking about their careers. We do training. We've done media training, you know, to help both 
very young and mid-career in terms of mid-career, in terms of issues, in terms of media, you know, talking to the media, speaking in front of the media, Twitter accounts, LinkedIn accounts, how to be a good person on Instagram, yeah. all that kind of stuff <laughs> on communications, how to write an op-ed, done a lot of that. We have several working groups that are set up for individuals to focus on more issues. So we have like, I think we have like six working groups, everything from national security to cybersecurity to global health to the weapons of mass destruction, climate change, illicit trafficking. So we have a number of working groups where people can focus. And we have a young ambassadors program so the young folks can get together and do things on their own. And so we do quite a few things. Yeah. So, so that's a whole lot of different projects, I guess. How, how do you evaluate which ones are working? And uh, did you expect that you, maybe you'll focus over time on the things that really seem to be moving the needle? Yeah. So like the networking, I could just see by the traffic. That's easy. The podcast reactions, like I just met someone last night and I was telling about podcasts. And, oh yeah, I heard that podcast. You know, I could check it on, on the website and see how many people are following that. So that helps to see that. How many people are, I mean, I'm seeing a lot more of my colleagues on panels. A lot more, a lot of organizations are contacting me to help them find people for their panels, for their things, because they know that we have a huge group of women of color. And so that's been really helpful. I mean, I have Council of Foreign Relations, which is a think tank, reached out and they did a, a presentation on some of the fellowships so they can get more people. So it's being seen as a resource now, which is great. People are coming out and, and people who I don't even know, just like using it to get information about a job. You know, we were hiring stuff because they want people of color to apply. So they look at my network as a great way to get people to do things. So it's been a great accomplishment. I ask uh, partly because I guess there's a bunch of similarities with 80,000 hours. So we're trying to shift people's careers to get them to go, go and work on like, yeah, paths that we think are particularly impactful. And sometimes it's easier to kind of evaluate the impact that you're having than others. So when we do like one-on-one -on -one advising, we can follow up and mm -hmm. find out uh, from people directly whether what we're doing is, uh, is helping. The podcast is a little bit trickier. We kind of survey people once a year, but I expect that it's potentially influencing quite a lot more people than yeah. what we're actually measuring. We try to write up, we try to write up these case studies where you figure out what people would have done, would have done otherwise supposed to, to satisfy donors, but it's interesting trying to prioritize between different projects when some of them are way more easy to quantify mm -hmm. the impact than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any projects that you expect to be kind of especially impactful? I suppose, for example, the podcast could reach like many, many thousands. Of yeah. And we're going to be doing a better job of advertising it. We have it on YouTube and iTunes, but we're going to be trying to do much better. At, we're going to put it on a podcast platform, which I think is on one now. We just can't figure out how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> we have it on WordPress. We have a whole separate website just for, for, just for that. I'm excited about this pipeline program that we're going to be doing. It's going to be me putting together, I said, junior high school, high school, graduate school, young adults on a graduate school, getting them, pulling them together. Each group would mentor the younger groups and learn how to mentor and just really strengthening the pipeline itself in terms of getting people into government. It's interesting in, in your presentation at Year Global, you're saying that kind of, well, the currency of New York is money. And I guess the currency in DC is sounded like a tension kind of. So it's like, did you get to write in the Washington Post? Did you like get to give all of these talks that other people saw? Which like has a bit more of a zero sum element because I suppose you can make more money and everyone can get richer, but it's a little bit hard for everyone to get more attention because there's only so much attention to go around. So you're suggesting maybe part of the way to help women of color advance in these careers is just to make sure that they get opportunities to be to be seen. And uh, I guess you're saying be on Instagram or get to get to be on panels. Yeah, get to be on panels, get to be on TV. TV, get to be on MSNBC, yeah. on TV, you know, just get to be doing opening statements. You just seeing it, seeing it more is indication that people recognize that there's a need and there's gaps. So we need to do something about it. Yeah. So something you can potentially really push on that, I guess, helps to advance people in their careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you recommend, I suppose, to people at the State Department or other organizations? How can they potentially help with, with your mission? 
if, if they're interested. Yeah, they could join the organization. They can they can let us know that they'd like to do joint programs with the organization and do a lot of those with, uh, with entities. You know, suggest members to be part of a yoga bestest program, be part of the network. Just, you know, I love great ideas, you know. So, you know, if there's an idea... Because they somebody may know an organization and said it'd be great if you guys work together. You know, it's just I'm pretty open to ideas and ways in which to strengthen what we do. How much does the fight over attention kind of make things feel a bit more combative? That people feel like they have to kind of constantly be pushing their name out there in the in, in the policy scene. Does that like worsen the culture? Do you think, or within DC, or maybe that's just how things have always been? I think this way it's always been, yeah. and I think people recognize when it's happening, but they don't. I don't think people take it too seriously. They're the people trying to get their name out there. So in uh, Effective Altruism, we try to like always encourage people to think about both the upsides and the downsides that they can have with their projects. So the only ways you think uh, WCAPs could kind of accidentally make things worse. So what, one way I was thinking is that potentially it highlights differences between uh, people within this kind of field, uh, where maybe it would be uh, useful to like highlight the ways that people are more more similar than than than, than they think. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it necessarily highlights them. It just speaks to the fact that there are differences and it speaks to the fact that there, there's nothing wrong with differences and it's a positive thing. But it's also important to have a place where people can share their experiences and share the frustrations of being a person of color in America and being a woman anywhere for that matter. And there are definitely negative things about that, but trying to empower them, you know, to be to feel good about that. Do you feel the tension, say, if you if you point out problems that women of color might face within the State Department or, or other government organizations, that's like potentially helpful for fixing those problems, drawing attention to them and getting them resolved. On the other hand, it might discourage women of color from applying to work and work there and like inadvertently make, make the problem worse by, by, by that route. Yeah. Well, the thing is, there has to be a certain amount of recognition of the fact that the U.S., the culture of the U.S. is based, it, there's just racism. It's just a part of our culture. And it goes back to the way in which we we started. And so by acknowledging it, recognizing the differences, calling these things out, but with the way of trying to figure out how do we work together is better because if we don't do that, then we end up losing out. It's almost if if you don't if you don't recognize the differences, then it's easy for things to go as as they always have been. And if you're not from the dominant culture, you'll keep losing out. But if you recognize the culture and then you say, you know, we have a different history in many ways. And therefore, you know, we want to bond together and make ourselves empower each other, then we can do all do better. You know, but if you don't do that, then it's almost like if you don't if you don't call it out, then nothing will change. It's like a false sense of security. And I've had people come back and say they don't like the term people of color. For that reason, I say, you know, because then you're making yourself different. But I said, there's nothing wrong with being different. It's how you look at it. You could be ne- think it's a negative thing. I don't think it's a negative thing. I think, if anything, it's trying to acknowledge the fact that we are a culture in America that's based as the racism is a very important part of who we are. And it's, and it's a negative thing. And so you have to deal with that. Is there room for a lot of other people to, to join you at WCAP? Yeah, it's I, it's open to everyone. Yeah, I say we're colored allies. Anyone, I have a page on my website that's it's called Down With The Cause. And, you, you know, I like to highlight people who are our allies. Are you hiring for any particular roles at the moment? I'm just hiring. I'm just right now in the process of hiring an intern. Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, we can stick up a link to that uh, job yeah, ad. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully it's this episode. Saw, will... It's on my first page, yeah. First page of the website. Yeah, is there anything you'd like to say to women of color in the audience who might be kind of on the fence about whether to pursue a career in uh, peace and security? Well, you know, there are many careers to pursue. So you don't have to pursue peace and security. 
But if you have an interest in security issues, if you have an interest in anything dealing with all these concerns that we are facing in the world today, so many things are impacting women of color around the world, whether it's access to health care or the way in which women are losing their lands because of climate change or dealing with infectious disease in the Congo or the lack of water in parts of Nigeria and the water scarcity in Flint, Michigan, or any of these issues affecting women around the world, particularly women of color. They affect them here and around, and there's a connection. So it's definitely an area ripe for entry for diverse voices. And we need them and the whole country needs them. It's not just us and everyone needs to have these diverse voices and these diverse ideas. I always tell people, you never know what you're not hearing if they're not there. And I always say, it's the example of, we could have had a cure to so many different things. We will never know because the people who might have given us the cure were not at the table. And so we can't afford to keep doing that because we're facing threats where we need to hear all the ideas and all the, the next, we might have missed the next genius of something because the person was never given an opportunity. We can't afford that. Do you think women of color might have like systematically different views in, in some way or like an insight into the peace um, and security that others don't? I think they definitely will. We, we are all a product of our, of our history and our upbringing. And I think some will have similar ideas because they, because the way they, they experienced their childhood and some will have different. I think because as women of color who've had, who experienced racism or discrimination, at least, at least most of us have. We have a different way of looking at things. We just have a different perspective. We have a different perception of some of the exact same things that others will look at. And that's true of any culture. That's true of any any group. They're just going to have a different viewpoint because of what they've experienced. Well, we're almost out of time, but I got, I got a couple of questions for you okay. uh, just to finish off. Did you watch The Americans? And if so, did, did you enjoy it? I watched a couple of episodes and I do like it. I just haven't, I just have to find more time to stream. But I saw a couple of cults. And unfortunately, I saw one that wasn't the first one. So I saw one. I said, it's really good. And then I saw the next one. I said, oh, my God, I saw it on a turn. <laughs> but it's just, do you watch it, I assume? Uh, I've watched all of it. Yeah, no, okay. I think it's it's a fantastic show. Yeah. I mean, I guess at some points it's like not completely realistic. But as, yeah, for, for a spy TV show. And how, how many years has it been on? Oh, well, it finished, I think, a year or two ago. It's so I think over. it had seven seasons in total. Wow. So I, yeah. That makes me excited. Because <laughs> I mean, I have a lot oh, of binge watch. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I mean, it gets very dark. People should be ready for that. But okay, yeah. all right. Um, are there any TV shows that you think give kind of a, a somewhat realistic portrayal of what it's like working in DC. So it's not House of Cards. <laughs> no, it's not House of Cards. It's not Scandal either. They have bits and pieces of it that's real. Yeah. But it's not nearly as sexy or as manipulative as they but it's TV. You know, they want to make it they want to they want to make it a little bit more than it really is. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame I can't really think of one. It's like I guess people would say um what was the show that Martin Sheen was on? He was a president. Oh, West Wing. West Wing. West Wing. Yeah. It's a bit. No, no. I mean, I saw, I haven't seen a lot of them. I, those shows, I mean, that was on for a long time. That's Not a good one to binge watch if you have a lot of time. Yeah. That, that one seemed like it had to be too idealistic to me. Like the people in the White House can't be this good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something, something in between, right? That, yeah. That one. Something between that and Veep, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> are there any candidates for 2020 that have particularly interesting ideas or like a, a good temperament for, for peace and security issues? 
Well, I don't know if any of them are really attacking peace and security the way I think they should. We just did a survey with my organization that we're going to come out with, and we targeted the three top issues that women of, at least women of color in the membership who I talked to came up with. And climate change, they have had a couple of special discussions about that. But as a rule, normally speaking, foreign policy does not get as much attention as domestic policy. I guess Tulsi Gabbard is, uh, talks about it a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's been, there's definitely been talk about it, probably a little bit more this time than in the past, and I think because people have been pushing them. So there's definitely been a lot more talk overall about foreign policy. But usually when you listen to the debates, you got to wait a, a long time for even somebody bitches foreign policy. Yeah. No, it's it's a, it's a huge frustration of mine because they'll they'll bicker endlessly about like very subtle issues in like domestic policy where like none of these things are likely to get through Congress. And yet like foreign policy where the president has this like like relatively free hand, they just discuss almost not at all. There's not, I don't think there's going to be a foreign policy specific debate in the Democratic primaries, which seems like a real shame. Yeah, particularly what's going on now. I mean, so much of what's happening and so much of disappointment and what's happening is, is all foreign policy issues. Yeah, completely. Do you think Steven Pink is right that there's kind of a, a pretty solid trend towards more peace over time? Or do you think maybe that could be an illusion that we just got lucky for seven years and it could be that the 21st century is like even worse than the than the 20th when it's all said and done? It's a bit of a grim question. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd like to think so. There's probably a trend towards greater peace, but this, it's not guaranteed. Like the, yeah. world's, the world's unpredictable. So we've got, we've got to stay on the ball. Yeah, I guess uh, on, on a more positive note to finish, uh, yeah, what, 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 what are the most positive signs um, in kind of international peace and cooperation that you, that you see today? I like things like the Sustainable Development Goals. I think that's a good way that's showing that the international community is recognizing some of the problems and they want to do something that they have targets in it that they're trying to measure by, that countries have to do a report even though I don't think we did one, they have to do a report on their success of what they're doing. I think that's a sign of the way in which we need to be working together to address some of the challenges we have. I think it's a good sign that there are no new countries who are trying to get nuclear weapons. It's the same ones. It's always been the same ones for years. We haven't had a knock on wood, haven't had a big biological attack. You know, that's, that's a good sign, you know. And young people marching for a better future is a good sign. Also, you know, there's been a lot of like instability and provocations over the last few years, but it seems like mostly like things have held together or like things don't always kind of fly out of control. There's often, there's, a, there's also restraint that, that the countries exercise. Do you think you might get back into the game and work in the executive branch again in future? Or is there just only so many years that someone can do this? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, it's hard. It's, it's really difficult to, to even think about that right now. Well, because we still got some time and with the organization doing well and teaching and I got a lot on my plate right now. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll have uh, anything. Anything can happen, right? Especially with my career. <laughs> my guest today has been Bonnie Jenkins. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for this. This has been great. I really appreciate it. There's a lot more talks uh, by and with people like Bonnie on the Effective Altruism Global YouTube channel, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. Just a reminder that we have about 100 jobs relevant to US government careers on our job board at 80,000hours.org jobs. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you next week.